Before we get into this episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, I need to tell you about the Hope Conference, which is taking place in Birmingham on the 11th of November. It's hosted by the Speakers Collective and the Chasing the Stigma Mental Health Charity, and it's a full day of workshops, speakers, roundtables, and collaborations with mental health firmly at the centre. And the aim is to bring together anyone and everyone with an interest in the conversation around mental health to share ideas and learn from each other. And there's some awesome speakers lined up and some really cool things going on throughout the day. You're going to be able to listen to talks from Dr. Samara Linton, who's an award-winning writer and author, from Jake Mills, who is the founder and the CEO of Chasing the Stigma and the man behind the incredible Hub of Hope app. You can also hear from Hannah Beecham, who is the founder of Red Together, and Katie Neves, who is a trans ambassador and the founder of Call to be Trans. And I think it's going to be an incredible day and a great chance just to spend some time with like-minded people because it's essentially a room full of people who are all committed to talking about mental health and making a difference. I'm going to be there and in the afternoon I'll be talking all things proper mental. I'll be talking about the story behind the podcast and how the sorts of conversations that I'm trying to have and the podcast medium can play an important part in challenging stigma and, and inspiring change. And I'm going to be talking about a few of the things I've learned along the way. It's a non-profit event and all the money from the tickets go to funding this year's event and hopefully putting it on again next year. So if that sounds like your cup of tea and you'd like to come along, there's a link to buy tickets in the episode notes of this episode. And if you use the code PROPERMENTAL, that'll give you 10% off your purchase. There are some credible people involved in this. There's actually a lot of my previous guests who are going to be there on the day. So if you've been listening to the show for a while... It'd be a great opportunity to come down, hang out with me, say hello to some of the people you've listened to me talk to over the last couple of years, and just spend some time in a really positive and compassionate space. It'd be great to see you there. And if you want any more information, go to speakerscollective.org slash hopeconference. There's also a link to that in the episode notes. That's enough from me. And I hope you enjoy this episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalizing open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to episode 104 of the Proper Mental Podcast and my guest this week is Katie Giorgio who is a counsellor and a psychotherapist. She's also a writer, an author and a podcaster. She's the host of the Sound Effects podcast. Sound Effects is a great podcast. I highly recommend it. It's all about music and mental health and she's had some great guests over the years. People like Steve Lamack, Alan McGee, Danny McNamara from Embrace, all sorts of wonderful people. And I'm a big fan because Katie's background as a counsellor and a psychotherapist, she asks really interesting questions. And whenever I listen to anyone else's podcasts, I'm always thinking like, what would I ask there? Or where would I take this conversation? And Katie always takes the chats somewhere a little bit different. So I'd highly recommend giving that a listen. And although we do talk about that a little bit towards the end of this episode, the main thing we talk about is stress. Because Katie's just written a book. It's called How to Understand and Deal with Stress. 
And that's exactly what we chat about. We talk about stress. What is it? What are some of the common causes and what we can do about them? We talk about why we get stressed, what starts to happen in our body when life speeds up and how stress can impact our mental health and our mental well-being and the role that stress plays when it comes to mental health and mental illness. I really liked Katie's book. She takes a lot of very complicated concepts and breaks them down into ways that anybody can understand. And something I really liked about it as well is that there's a lot of answers and solutions there. So as well as writing about the different types of stress, how they manifest and what's happening, there's also loads of different tips, loads of different ideas, loads of different things that you can do about that stress. Because it's so common with wellness that we get told, you know, if we don't sleep enough, all this terrible stuff's going to happen. If we don't eat differently, then all this terrible stuff's going to happen. But no one really tells us how to eat differently or how to sleep better. I love that Katie's book had a lot of actionable advice in there. We also talk about her work as a counsellor and a psychotherapist, how she got into it. We talk about her time as a Samaritan. She used to volunteer on the helplines. We talk about her love of music and writing about music. And that's all the stuff that led to her starting the Sound Effects podcast. And Katie and I are both big, big music fans. We talk about that a lot. And she has a really good anecdote about the time her mum met Liam Gallagher. It's worth listening to this episode just for that. There's a link to Katie's website in the episode notes. If you want to connect with her on Twitter, it's at Sound Effects Pod, or on Instagram, it's at Sound underscore Effects underscore Podcast. If you want to catch up with me at Proper Mental Podcast in all the usual places, or send me an email via the website. And if you could take a minute or two to review this episode or any of the episodes that you've listened to, it would be very much appreciated. And this is episode 104 of the Proper Mental Podcast. With Katie Giorgio. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Katie Giorgio. How are you, mate? I'm really good. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for having me on. I said just a moment ago, I really appreciate it. But yeah, it's really good to to be on here and just amazed that you listen to my podcast as well. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> oh, mate, well, I feel, I feel exactly the same. I, always feel, I find it really useful if I've got a guest on who has something like a podcast that I listen to. It, it makes it so much easier because I kind of, when you get used to having someone's voice in your headphones, it yeah. makes it really easy to talk to them because you kind of feel like you already know, even though we've never met, we've never really like spoke before, but because I'm used to hearing your voice, it makes it very easy for me to just kind of like drop into the conversation. So it's always, um, always a nice touch. Yeah. That's true, actually. I didn't think of that, but yeah, it's, um, because just even saying hello to you now, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I have, have heard you before and yeah, <laughs> yeah. voice. Yeah, that's good. Oh, that's cool. Well, there's, um, I've got uh, quite a lot of notes of, yeah things we can talk about today um and because of like the work you do and all the different things you do there's so many different ways that we could go with this conversation yeah. and I wanted to start with one that's got very little to do with mental health at all and it's more for um personal reasons rather than professional reasons because I know it's something that we're going to be able to talk about but every time I get someone on I always pop their name into google and see what comes up oh, and God. when I when I googled <laughs> you one of the first things that comes up is a picture of a very young Katie 
with a certain Mr. Liam Gallagher yeah. and a, a really cool story about a tambourine. And I thought I'm a massive Oasis fan myself. Oh, I thought, um, so I thought we've got us, we've got to start there. But, um, start how there. old was young Katie in that picture, mate? Young Katie in that specific picture would have been the one with the tambourine. I would have been 15. So yeah, I, I always looked a little bit younger than what I am. So I think I look really young in that picture, but I was about 15. Um, yeah, that um, I don't know in terms of your Googling how much you know about my Oasis obsession, but particularly during the Be Here Now period. So I, I was um 97 be here now period I was 14 so between the age of 14 and 15 I um used to go and knock on Liam and Noel's doors all the time I just used to go down to their houses and knock on their doors and they weren't always in and sometimes they were and Liam got to know me quite well around there and I don't know if he'd remember me now but I used to often pop around and say hello I never went in his house but um he was always so lovely and so kind and I always remember how both of them were just quite happy for, for fans to just come around and, and knock on the door and as long as you know I think there was like a mutual understanding that the fans loved the band and that the band the band were fine with them provided everyone was respectful like uh, they, they loved it so yeah that's why there's a picture of me outside Liam's house um and that tambourine, there is a story around that. And I don't know if you know the story. Do you know the story around that tambourine? I, I read a little interview snippet with you, but I'd like to, I'd really like to hear it from uh, from yourself. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I'd I'd initially told this story on Oasis podcast. So like the full background to it is on on there, but um essentially what what was happening is that I'd gone to um so I was around 15 and I thought I wanted to get Liam a, a present and I think it was around his birthday because we're in September now aren't we it was se September time it was um his birthday and I thought I want to get him some kind of gift just as a fan to say thank you or um and also to for his birthday so um I'd gone to Camden Market earlier that day with a friend of mine and you know like in Camden Market they've got loads of these like um they've got they used to have anyway these shops full of pictures of different like stars in black and white and they've got loads of music instrument shops as well so I bought a picture of John Lennon and um, I went into one of these shops where they did these strange musical instruments they had strange things like didgeridoos and um the, that tambourine that had like this sort of uh I tried to think it was I don't know what kind of skin it had on the top but it was like this white skin with tassels on it and I looked at it and I thought oh Liam's you know with his tambourine I thought I want to get him a little tambourine and it looked different and so I thought I'd buy that so um me and my friend went around um because in those days they lived near near Camdenish sort of Primrose Hill way um 
so I got there and we were quite amazed on that day. Liam, Liam was in and he popped outside and he said, hello. There were a couple of other fans there as well. And I just said to Liam, Liam, I've got, uh, I've got you some presents. I wanted to give them to you. And he, he was so lovely. I was like, oh, amazing. Like I gave them to him. I said, can I take a photo of you with them? Can I, can I like, can you stand by your door and I'll, I'll take a picture? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he went up to the door and he had the tambourine in one hand and the picture of John Lennon in another. I took the photo. And then um, some weeks later, back in the day when you had to develop your pictures, there was no like digital cameras. I um, developed them and I took the photo back and I, I said to him, oh, I've got this picture of you, can you sign it? And he, he signed it. Um, so that was that would have been 98 ish, I think, if I get the dates cut around 1998, maybe earlier, I can't remember. But um, years later, this is many, many years later, would have been 2005. By that point, I was at university and I was um, I was in my halls of residence. It was quite early in the morning. I was like just one of those days at uni where you're just bored, just you know it must have been like I don't know I had lectures later the day or something like that and uh, I was at my desk just writing something and my mum called me and she said to me I'm just doing a bit of shopping she was somewhere in town and she said I've just come into this shop and you'll never guess who's in this shop I said who and she goes Liam Gallagher's just walked in and she said he's with um, his wife at that point it would have been Nicole he said um, and uh, his children and um, so his children would have been pretty young then and she said I'm just trying to be sort of quiet because they've just walked in but I just wanted you to know and she was getting quite excited because she was a bit of a fan as well and as she was talking Liam saw her and walked up to her whilst she was on the phone and I heard him say to her, do, do I know you from somewhere? And she got kind of a bit like, oh, and uh, she said, I, I, I don't I, I don't know you. We don't know each other. But but my daughter's on the phone like just now, like she's a really massive Oasis fan and she's met you a few times. And out of the blue, he just he took the phone out of her hand and he put it to his ear and he just went hello and I so I'm like sitting there on my <laughs> by my desk at my halls and suddenly <laughs> Liam's on the phone like Liam and he's like hi how are you like how's it going I was like oh my god I don't know if you even know who I am or like if you remember me but I used to always go around to your house when I was younger like back in the be here now days um I was always popping around like I have no idea if you'd even know who who I was now and he was like oh yeah that's cool like how, how's it all been keeping I said like, yeah good 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 and I said you know I remember giving you this gift years ago it was like um a tambourine and I don't know if you remember it and he goes oh like describe the tambourine and I said like well it was really small and he and it was white and he goes hang on did it have like a skin on it and I said yeah he goes was there tassels like around it and it was really little I said yeah he goes yeah yeah I've still got that <laughs> <laughs> and so I I was just absolutely amazed that how how cool he was on the phone and um how sweet he was about it and then he remembered it and he remembered the tambourine and he actually described it back to me which was amazing 
um and he said he still got it so yeah that was that was my tambourine story and that's why um in that picture it's in time out isn't it that's the the picture um I think I don't know if that was the day I'd given him that tambourine it, it must have been a different day but um that was where the story came from it, about giving him a tambourine <laughs> oh mate that's incredible you know the idea that um yeah, that you can just wander into a into a shop and bump into your mum and end up on the phone to you. That's pretty. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty yeah, pretty so special. Good. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I mentioned, I'm kind of a big Oasis fan myself, and probably around that time, you know, I was a teenager in the '90s, and I, I lived in a very um, a very small town then, and we weren't getting the waves of what was what was big, you know. So the first two albums, kind of, I was aware of, but they kind of passed me by in the first first go round but be here now was pretty unavoidable at that time right so that even like leaked out into the darkest depths of east anglia and <laughs> and had everyone, had everyone listening to it but yeah they were very informative band i, I often be, the risk of going on a, a bit of a tangent but i always think it's really interesting um if i chat to people about uh, like this idea of like masculinity right and where it comes to where it comes from to what it means to be a man and how that affects our mental health and I always reference Oasis when I talk about that because for me growing up you know in like a, a small town like quite a rough area and you know masculinity was all about like how hard you were basically and like whether you could fight or not and if you couldn't then you kind of pretended to um and you know living life where you're um shape-shifting and changing with these sorts of things and doing things you don't really want to do and you know it can be really damaging right and i think oasis were really important in that because they were like these these tough lads from a council estate but they were also singing love songs and i remember even then thinking like oh hang on a minute so you can be really tough and still have feelings right and that wasn't um people weren't sort of talking about it like that back then you know but i remember thinking all oh, right so you you know being a man isn't just about the bit the tough bit you can also like you know sing songs about your your girlfriend or your wife as well and i was thinking this really interesting way of uh you know, of looking at the whole masculinity conversation and the part they played in it is something that always jumps out to me. But that's so, but that's so nice that you're saying that, and so interesting because it's it's always been such a bugbear of mine the way people frame Oasis as as a kind of bad influence and being emblematic of um, a version of toxic masculinity. And I've always felt it to be quite different, actually, as you say, like um, some of the stuff they come out with is quite beautiful and heartfelt. And um, hearing you talk about that, the, the, your experience of them as like having heartfelt songs that enabled you to to kind of express yourself in a different way or allowing you to, to feel those feelings just tells such a different story. And I love that. I, 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 I love that. I love hearing things like that because it, it, I so agree with you and it's, it's can be frustrating sometimes trying to explain that to people, I think, when they, when they just get the tabloid version of what Oasis technically represented which they didn't at all really yeah. yeah yeah very much so i think people see kind of see more of the the nicer side in in recent years particularly with liam isn't it he's sort yeah. of he's sort of seen now as a bit of a national treasure whereas <laughs> like maybe 20 years ago he was he was the thug wasn't he from the band but yeah. i think now you know and he's turning up on um celeb goggle box and stuff like you know and i think he's uh he's got a kind of people are starting to kind of like under get him right they're trying yeah. to understand him but um 
there you go. I mean, we could turn this into a very, very different podcast. We, case yeah. um, <laughs> hey, maybe one day let's do it, right? Maybe one day let's do it. Um, um, but for now, what I really want to talk about um, is stress. And, um, you know, you've got a, a book that's, that, is it is it out? Is it on its way out as a publication debut? Yeah. Publication date was yesterday. Ah, so, yeah. Hot off the press. Hot off the press. Yeah. Strange date for publication. It will always be associated now with Queen Dying. Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean yeah. to, I'm not laughing at that. It's yeah. just the yeah. irony of it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Should have should have done one about grief and uh yeah. <laughs> might, might shifted yeah. a few more copies. But anyway, um, yeah, so I think firstly what I would like to talk about is like why why stress you know why why did you choose to um to write about that well that one was slightly different in the sense that I was asked to write about it so that I was I was approached to uh write about stress specifically so it was less me deciding to write about it initially but I suppose maybe one of the reasons I was maybe approached was just partly to do with my role in my job and my work around mental health related issues but also I could see a kind of match because stress I think is one of those topics that it sort of sits around it, it sort of sits in between physical health and mental health and usually when people talk about mental health they're talking about specific either diagnostic issues like anxiety or depression or if we go further down the scale even you know bipolar schizophrenia or they're talking about the big emotions like grief or um, heartbreak and loneliness and things like that stress doesn't tend to come into the picture when people talk about mental health as such until you kind of think you drill down into it and think actually stress underpins probably most of the mental health issues that exist whether you whether it's clinical or non-clinical stress is underpinning pretty much all of them I think it's the, the sort of glue of all of them really um, and when you look at mental health issues mental health anything to do with that um, the two things I would say are to do with control lack of control and stress um, which exacerbate them and there's a kind of they feed into each other a bit so I, I felt like it, it was an important topic to kind of address in terms of where stress plays a role in that um, yeah yeah it's a really lovely way to put it and I think it's one of those the more I've thought about it building up to this conversation the more I've kind of um, just dug into it a little bit and read about it a little bit and um, you see more and more the links and in ways that I didn't hadn't really thought of before you know I'd never really thought of it as being like an underlying thing through a lot of different um you know mental health issues from my own perspective I kind of often um stress can be a precursor to a depressive episode so it's like the the stress of of life if sometimes life just gets busy right that's just how it goes and um that can empty the tank and once the tank's empty then i've got to deal with the other stuff you know so that's kind of like that that's another way that i was i was looking at but i thought what would be really really useful because the, the book is in in two parts right so in the first part is we're understanding stress and i think what will be really interesting for people when we look at the the stress responses some of them are very, very common and people will definitely have heard of. But as we kind of go further into that, 
there's a few that aren't very common, right? And I think um, I, you know, I personally um, like I knew out of the five in your book, I knew of four of them. So there was one there that was like, oh, okay, I've not heard of that one. Okay. Um, so that was really, really interesting for me. And I was wondering if we could go through those five, yeah. Katie, just to kind of just yeah. to kick us off, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So the five, I guess you mean the the fight, flight, flop, freeze, and fawn responses. Yeah, yeah. Where would you like me to begin with those? Let, should we start with fight or flight because they're the sort of they're the the classics, so to speak, that people will be more more aware of. Yeah. Um, so as a stress response, do we mean that when we experience stress, that's our way of sort of tackling it or avoiding it? Or is that is that kind of what we're talking about when we talk about stress response? Yeah, pretty much, because I think um, most people really have heard about fight flight response. I think it's become part of our language where we say it and we don't always necessarily know what we're referring to maybe when we say that phrase I think people understand it as that kind of primal response we have to to danger or threat and I guess people say it like it just didn't in common language like I had a fight flight response but when we stop and think about what that really means I guess we're talking about the way that we react to danger stress threats um, and we see it in the wild you know you, you see like animals that kind of attack and animals that flee um, and I guess the the fight and flight response are those two I guess mo- I don't even know if I'd say they're the most common but the most well-known are those two responses where you either sort of stay and front something out or you run off and flee and running off um, can mean anything from literally running away to sort of avoidance techniques and strategies and giving up things. And, and I think we've all possibly experienced that feeling where just in a state of panic or anxiety, we, we sort of give up. Um, I know I've done that with even reading a menu once. I remember getting stressed because there was so much on the menu and I didn't know what I wanted. And the waiter came around and said, what can I get you? And I had this sudden response of like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of just went into a weird fluster and like dropped the um uh, the menu I just dropped it and I was like I need more time <laughs> I was like what earth happened to me I had a complete meltdown um so that that kind of thing where we can recognize it in different ways but it can show up in in very subtle ways as well and um so with fight response I think we would typically understand that as maybe being quite confrontational um but it can it can also show up. I mean, the common one is running into a road. If, if, if there's like a child that runs into the road and you run to save them, it's a kind of instinctive response. But it, it can also be to do with how you navigate um, arguments in relationships, you know, sort of tackling things head on. Some people are quite good at um, being able to stay with that confrontation and that difficulty and fronting it out. And they're not afraid to sort of, say this is what I think this is what I feel and they're not afraid of hearing it back either and it can be quite energizing um and that's how they they thrash it out there's other people where that's quite a terrifying concept and and they'll do anything to sort of avoid that and confrontation that I guess part of that is to do with how we're brought up possibly around what you know what conflict means and whether we we like conflict but 
other people will just avoid it at all costs and might have more of a fight response in relationships and sort of flee from difficulty and would sooner break up with someone than argue, you know, things like that. Um, so that's fight and flight. Um, the other ones, um, freeze, flop and fawn, people people tend to give them different names. I've heard them called different things over time, like fawn, I've heard people describe it as friend. Um, I've heard it be, being given other names as well, but I, I call it fawn, that's how I understood it. But the fawn response is where you kind of go closer to your stress and closer to your danger. It's not so much that you confront it in the same way as a fight response it's more based in fear that actually to keep yourself safe um you go closer and a lot of people might recognize that if you've ever been bullied in childhood for example you might really recognize that process of befriending your bullies to kind of keep safe um and you kind of become quite intuitive knowing what the danger is and you almost stand alongside it because you don't you don't want to be um spotted and and it keeps you really safe and I think this kind of response becomes really important when we understand trauma and how people you often hear in the news how when things happen to to people in situations of violence, mugging, rape, um, all sorts of things like that, you often hear people say things like, but why didn't that person flee? Why didn't that person run away? Why didn't they shout? Why didn't they do this or that? And actually, if you understand the form response, it can be really powerful to understand how that happens, that sometimes when the danger is so pronounced and so strong there's no option to run away because there just isn't an escape if if you're being overpowered in some way you can't get away and there's no way to fight back because you're totally disempowered and trying to fight or shout or do anything is actually going to put you in danger or more harm if someone's got a weapon on you or something in that moment your body is trying to deal with as best as it can to to keep yourself safe and it's and it's almost like rapidly going through like a file system in in your mind of all the things it could do in that slow motion it sort of slows down and and you, you short circuit to your amygdala and, and it's like what can I do to survive and it will just find anything in that moment and the form response is kind of almost automatic it's like stay quiet, say nothing, be calm, befriend whoever this person is, get out safely. And it can feel like autopilot. So, and I know that's happened to me on occasion where I felt a bit scared in a situation. I've not known how to get out of it. And so I'm walking along with this person thinking, just kind of clocking everything around me thinking, is there is there an exit here? Is there an exit here? And in the meantime, I'm having this really nice chat with this person. That's a kind of fawn response. Um, and lots of people do have it and will recognise that. I don't know if you recognise that at all in yourself or um, 
know people that have had that, but it's it, it's more common than we think. Yeah, it makes a lot of it. It makes a lot of sense to me. I think uh, you know it particularly. Um, a great analogy was when you were talking about the school bully. You know, and we briefly touched on, um, you know, on on school for for me earlier, and that mm. it was definitely a case of, um, you know, fawning towards the, you know, to keep yourself safe was definitely for you know, and it almost becomes like a people pleasing thing, you know, which is something that I definitely have to work on at all times. But um, uh, yeah, but you know, I can I can completely see why that would, um, you know, it's almost like a, a way of blending in, isn't it? Blending in with the the aggressor or the stressor. Um, yeah. to kind of yeah to keep yourself it's like tucking yourself under the wing of the the bigger angrier bird of prey right to um, yeah. yeah yeah exactly so um, yeah it's, it's fascinating really it was what's really interesting about the the five things that we'll carry on working through in a second is that you know we might have a we might have a preference we might have a go-to but when I was reading in your book I was thinking like oh yeah I do that and then the next one oh yeah I kind of did that too and th- th- I, there was a bit of me in all of them and um you know and as humans we're we're good at like you say subconsciously it's almost like looking at the options available and picking the most suitable one for that situation but we do it in like a billionth of a second right on automatic pilot but I could definitely like see myself in in all of them in in some way to be honest yeah definitely it's that billionth of the second thing and it, it um it's sort of a mix between assessing the situation in that moment as quickly as possible in that billionth of the second as a survival instinct kind of mixed in with your what you did in your early years so there's some there's some understanding that whatever in your in your early development because you know we do whatever we can to cope things can get hardwired so if you had a particular response at a young age um that you did that kind of gets hardwired so you you can find that that becomes um your autopilot just because that's what worked at the time and so uh, it can happen with um not even to do with the the fight flight responses but even with other things like sometimes if at a really young age your way of dealing with anxiety for example was to drink you probably you'll find like in later years um that's like your first go-to thought I need a drink and or like um if your first response when you were younger was to have a panic attack that might be what happens later so it, it kind of um across the board you'll see that sort of pattern that whatever went on in your earliest years tends to be your your initial first instinctive response and then what will happen is you you can kind of circumnavigate that as you as you develop awareness of what's going on you can change it but it's the same with these stress responses that you you'll have certain parts of your makeup that are sort of pushing you to a particular one and then along the way you've had further life experiences that have taught you other things and so it is like your your brain as you said that billionth of the second it's just shifting through that file really really quickly thinking what's going to work what's going to work what's going to work and it's kind of doing that for you and you're right like you you can recognize um all of them we, we do all of them um, and you mentioned like the bird of prey I thought that was a nice analogy because I think you do see it in the wild like we see things like camouflage like some animals camouflage to keep safe 
some are very openly outwardly aggressive animals like I'm thinking of like a lion that you know just raw they've got this power um then you've got you know the um animals that will just flutter off and escape the tortoise I love the tortoise one because you see it like the, their heads just go back into their shell and you can see it in all of them and you realize oh this is such a this is a primal instinctive animal thing that is common to to animals and mammals and, and humans are, are no different in that in that very instinctive place yeah yeah I, I suppose for human beings there's just so many more things that can trigger it right so in the animal kingdom it tends to be like maybe getting eaten or <laughs> you know it's very, very getting away from a bushfire or whatever but it's probably very limited probably if you wrote all the things down there'd be a list and it was all the same versions of that stuff whereas humans it can be anything from like a physical situation to an email to all these we just have all these other things don't we and something that jumped into my head then um, when you were talking, I was thinking it's also the human brain is not a human brain is not a long term thinker, right? So if like if alcohol is the way that you cope and soothe in those situations, your brain isn't thinking if I grab some alcohol now, it's not going to work out very well for me in ten pints time. So maybe I should find something else. Your brain is thinking, well, that's my coping mechanism. Get on it. We'll sort the rest out later, right? Is with not the the subconscious bit doesn't necessarily look at the next steps. It's like let's deal with this in the moment, sort everything else out later, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's that survival mode. Your bodies, because our, our bodies are so clever in so many ways. The way they've evolved and adapted, it's really good at managing I think that's the thing especially where stress comes into it because our threshold for stress and our threshold for disaster in a way on our body is quite high I think in we can deal with quite a lot and take a lot and um, systems are in place physiologically to enable that to happen and I wouldn't be able to tell you like the biology of it as such but only to know that psychologically what will tend to happen is your body will do something to cope so even if you don't eat for a day or two your body can handle that and it will readapt and there's obviously you know it goes into homeostasis and it tries to um sort of go back there and it, it will it all works perfectly to keep you safe and alive but at some point it, it wants to go back to that baseline state but over time if if a problem is sustained at that high level for too long, that's when problems start to emerge. That's when the body starts to sort of fight back a bit. It's like, well, I can keep you alive by not eating for a certain amount of time, but that's gonna have some repercussions later, like a delayed effect. And if you keep that up, that delayed effect is gonna get even worse. And like, if you don't sleep, I'll handle that. You know, you might have like a deadline or a, or a business meeting and the, the adrenaline will keep you through and that's fine and that's fine but you do that for two days three days four days eventually your body's going to start screaming and you're going to collapse and and if you don't listen to those signs early on those physical symptoms get worse and worse until your body's like no no more and then you that's when you get your serious health problems um and it's the same across the board and stress is no different and this is the thing with the those five f responses in the moment your body will adapt to help you survive stress your responses kick in 
fine and at some point the expectation is you'll go back to normal but if you're operating at this level of high stress and threat persistently and it doesn't change that will have a ramification on you later yeah yeah and I suppose as well it, there's a lot of situations for modern humans where that's completely normalized so if you, if you work in a like a high pressure high stress environment you might be in an office with 10 other people and because you're all stressed you kind of forget what it's like to not be stressed and everyone's stressed and then yeah. it just becomes completely normalized and you've actually got no idea that you're you're not feeling right because it's everyone's in exactly the same boat and it, it's no longer weird it's no longer un, unusual or something to be to be dealt with yeah yeah. I, I think that's where we're at now, actually, thinking about uh, what's gone on in the world in the last couple of years, thinking about that, our base level stress as, as a collective, we, we went through this, you know, life has always been stressful anyway, as it is, then we've got our personal stresses, then we have this situation where, you know, we had the situation with Brexit, then we had started getting sort of you know, with the internet, 24-7 news, it, there was a period of time where news was always disastrous and bad. And then we started getting used to that. And we're used to just tweeting and hearing it constantly, hearing about really traumatic events. Then the pandemic hits. We're all in lockdown. We've all gone into survival mode. We didn't know what was happening so our level of stress was so high and then it's like we developed a tolerance for it. We came out of the pandemic straight into now there's a war with Ukraine. Then it's like we're coping with that. And then it's like now we've got this cost of living crisis kind of, OK, how are we dealing with that? Now the Queen has died. It's like, OK, what I'm aware of is that as a society, our threshold for tolerance is, is going like this I'm doing this with my hands like raising my hands up our baseline stress levels probably now as a society collective are very very high but I'm quite cautious about it because I think in this state you know one tiny little drop for, for someone a, a bad piece of news or an event that might otherwise be quite small can can trigger it I mean I don't want to alarm people but I think it's it's useful to be aware and know that small things can trigger us off in moments like this and to really start paying attention to how we are and noticing what's going on with our emotional selves and mental health and if we're prone to things like depression anxiety panic even if you're if you have any kind of diagnosis actually notice now what your baseline stress is because you're you're you might be primed for something again I don't want to sound like doom and gloom but it's it's just I think sometimes people don't see that bigger picture um, yeah 100% yeah. Yeah, it's really important to talk about some of the the poorliest people that I know don't know they're poorly and most of them are walking around in a state of stress and they're all the ones that when you bump into them the ones that all they want to talk about is all the things that you've just mentioned and they don't really want to talk about the nice things in their life or the lovely afternoon off that they just had because they probably didn't have one you know all they want to, people are just caught in this loop of going round and round and round and you know it's a uh, you know, and a lot of, you know, I'm talking about, you know, my experience of people that I know, um, well, there's a lot of health issues 
attached to that. And a lot of people who spend a lot of time in doctor's waiting rooms are people who spend a lot of time living in fear and stress. And there's like a correlation between the two. And like you say, we just get caught, caught in that loop, you know, and it's just because we can deal with it doesn't mean we should. I always think this about my kids, you know, when something big happens in like a child's life, someone always says, oh, the children are so resilient. I said, well, just because they can be doesn't mean they should be, right? (laughs) Just because they can do something. But it's the same with us. Just because we can handle loads of stress doesn't mean we should be walking around handling it (laughs) all the time, you know? It's just not not how it works yeah so what was the so we've done three out of the five i've completely lost where we were there mate what was um what's up next we did fight we did fight or flight and fawn we've done fawn yeah the other two were freeze and flock um so freeze is probably quite a recognizable one that's when you're kind of a rabbit in the headlights that kind of like you kind of feel paralyzed like it's too much. I don't know what to do. I've got list paralysis. Like, um, I think a lot of us will have been there where like even writing a list feels too much. Sending an email feels too much. Even asking someone to make a list feels like another chore. Even asking someone, what do you need? What, what's wrong? It's like, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. I can't, I can't say what's wrong. I'm so paralyzed. I don't even know how to voice it. That would be your, your sort of freeze response. And it's just like, everything just stops. Um, and you, and certainly I think people recognize that like, um, if a car comes at you, a lot of people would just freeze. Like you're not running and you're not fighting it's just freeze and I think again that's an instinctive response of like in that billionth of a second as you said you're assessing what to do I think it's that kind of moment of like um the spotlights on you and you just you're trying to figure out what's the best situation now and in that moment you just it's like you become a bit of a statue (laughs) um and again that happens when you're in real you know danger again it it happens with traumatic incidences again when people say why didn't the person shout or fight or whatever well they could have had a freeze response and uh just frozen and not knowing what to do so um that is so instinctive and it's it's a it's quite a difficult one to get yourself out of cognitively because it can feel very physical um but that would be yeah that would be the freeze response um the flop response is an interesting one um because that is a kind of it's sort of like freeze but it's a complete breakdown of you it's almost like a dissociation um you you might faint or you just you dissociate um so dissociation is when you're sort of your body and your thoughts just completely disconnect and it's like you're not real um, and it can be my, it can be anything from a mild version to quite an extreme version so really mild versions of it would be like zoning out and going into a daydream that can happen for people like when they're in the shower I know it happens to me like I just zone out in the shower I start drifting off and like 10 minutes have gone by I'm like oh I was just drifting <laughs> off there I don't know what that was that's a kind of dissociation but it can that's a mild version but it can be quite extreme it can be um that you so you totally disconnect from your body you have a blackout some people find themselves after a state of stress 
waking up having blacked out um on the floor thinking what just happened I don't I don't have any memory of what went on and actually they don't even remember the stress or the or what triggered it they've just gone completely blank but it happens so instinctively stress happens and they're gone um and it can go all the way from that to sort of um slightly more on the side of a disorder there's there's sort of um dissociative disorders that go along with that I guess that's a slightly different thing because then you're talking about sort of real uh, historical pattern of trauma that that can be the case for people who've had like serious neglect and abuse in their life um with, with violence sexual racism all of that and and that can trigger a, a much more complex relationship with that dissociation later but it, yeah it's all along that spectrum but that would all like sort of sit along that idea of a flop response um it's called flop I guess it's quite a good word for it because you your body just flops out and you it's like yeah. short circuits yeah yeah wow it's fascinating you know the obviously these things you know they can be quite awful when they happen and they're often in response to something that can be quite awful but to step away from that and look at it as a as a as a mechanism you know like it's incredible that we have all these you know what i mean you know we for various reasons some of which we talked about we might not be using them appropriately or at the right time or they might not be healthy long term but the fact that there are all these systems in us as humans that enable us to respond in this way is it's like it's impressive right like it's the supercomputer that is the human brain is like it's it's fascinating that there's all these um all these things going on essentially to keep us safe that's really the underlying thing is why we do all these things right it's just to try and like stop us you know experiencing harm yeah exactly that's exactly it it's keeping you safe and even you know i heard this wonderful phrase i'd never heard it before but I, I, it really stayed with me. It was from a, funnily, funnily enough, it was a training tutor that said it. When people think of um, something like psychosis, we've got, we've got very funny ways of looking at it in our society. I know different societies see it very differently and, and something like that um, can be understood sort of prejudicially. But when it was described to me as psychosis is a capacity, it's the capacity that the brain has to disintegrate in moments of great trauma so that you can survive. I thought it was beautiful because it, it, it sort of reframed it as like, actually it's a survival mechanism. And for whatever reason why it's happened, we all do actually have that capacity. So if things get really bad for us, we have that capacity to stay safe and not die to that, to that extent. I thought it was um, a nice way of when I heard it putting it, and I think that's if we if we thought of all of these stress responses as our innate inbuilt capacity to cope and survive, it helps us understand that um, is our body looking after us, even if it doesn't serve us well in our current society. Yeah. Yeah, that is a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? And it kind of like it goes against all the 
um, you know, all the stigma and all the fear and all the misunderstanding of something like uh, psychosis, it just puts it in a way that's kind of like, oh yeah, that just makes so much more, more sense. It makes it so much more, um, you know, easier to understand. Yeah, definitely. So the, the, um, the second half of your book is, is about managing the stress yeah. and like, there's a lot to go through there. Right. So I'm not going to get you to go for every, uh, <laughs> every single one. Um, but like one thing I really liked is there's so many different options and it, it's something I get on my high horse a lot, quite a lot is this whole conversation, um, for example, around mental health awareness. Right. And I always say, well, all we're doing is screaming mental health awareness, but we don't tell anyone what to do when they're aware. For me personally, my life got a lot harder once I was aware I was mentally ill because I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> and yeah. I think, you know, and so I love that there was um, so many options because, again, quite often when we're looking for help with something, we might see the top two or three stereotypical things that are always recommended on Instagram and go, well, none of them fit me. None of them work for me. Now I've now I haven't got anything. But the, the lovely thing in your in your book is that there's so many different options. And I think that's really hopeful. If someone's experiencing stress and they're like, I don't know how to deal with this, I don't know what to do, that you know, all these little techniques, there is so there will be something for everyone, right? It's just a case of making people aware about all the different stuff that's out there rather than just telling everyone to go and do yoga and that's the end of it. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice that you that you felt that way because I was quite worried about that actually uh, when I wrote it. It was really important for me to be really mindful of that, if, exactly of what you're saying, that there is so much out there. And I, I, I think people most of the time are quite well-meaning when, when we talk about mental health. But you're right that sometimes the solutions provided can feel quite light and to some extent, even a, a little bit patronizing for people if they've gone through real hardship, it can be a bit much to just say to them, you know, go for a walk or, as you say, do some yoga, which a lot of people are probably already doing and already know about. So I was very conscious of that in the book and I wanted to be aware of it and at the same time I'm aware that those things are mentioned in the book so I do mention walking and I do mention yoga and, and all the rest of it but I do also try to bring other things and I talk more about like the different types of therapy that you can get um I talk I, I wanted to talk about things like PTSD and uh, complex PTSD and EMDR therapy and stuff like that because um I had such a small space. The book is tiny, obviously I've got it here. And there wasn't, you know, the word count wasn't huge and I had to pack quite a lot in a small um, amount. And I, I was worried uh, about kind of being too generalist. Um, so it's really nice hearing you say that for you, you feel like there is, it, it's, there is a lot that people can take that's really nice to know because that's what i wanted oh mate yeah you try one thing and it don't work we'll try something else and it, it like it's when we feel like we're running out of options yeah. that hope starts to fade and once hope starts to fade then it's a, a really difficult you know it's t t times get tough when that starts happening right so if we've got more stuff that we can we can try we can um you know we can mess about with and you know some of the the more um, and I'm talking sort of like self-care and wellness in general here, you know, not just stress, the sort of wider mental health conversation, but some of the more general stuff when it doesn't work, like from, from my own experience, I tried all the things you're supposed to try and I just internalized all that when it didn't work. 
So yeah. for me, going for a run didn't work. It was my fault. It wasn't that running was not the right tool for the job. It wasn't that it wasn't appropriate. It wasn't that, uh, you know, I, I was like, you know, killing myself on long runs rather than, you know, rather than just going having a nice breezy jog around the park. None of that mattered. I was always like, that's my fault. I'm too broken. I'm, you know, like, and, um, but I didn't really know what else to try. You know, there was no other, people weren't telling me to try anything else. No one else was suggesting anything else. So yeah, it's always about having those options. But I think that I suppose what would be really useful to chat about a little bit is underpinning no matter what we choose to help us manage stress before we can do that, we have to know that we're stressed. And I think the most powerful tool is an awareness, right? Is understanding what's, what's going on. Would I be right in saying that Katie? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Awareness, um, knowing that you're stressed and being able to say it out loud to yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm stressed right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that I I hope I got that across in the book. Um, the fundamental part is recognizing it in yourself and learning how to recognize it, not just sort of saying I'm stressed, but really attuning to your own intuitive understanding of your body and how you understand yourself because we all know ourselves really well we we are the experts in our own lives and I think what we can tend to do sometimes is defer our knowledge to the doctor you know we're very accustomed I think it's just ingrained in us there's a problem go to the doctor there's a problem go to the therapist which is great obviously they are the experts they do know what they're talking about but at the same time we do have an innate wisdom that we can work with and we know when we're out of sorts in a way that other people won't so you know for someone else having a bit of a heart flutter might be normal for them and they're like I'm always getting heart flutters it's nothing but for you personally that might be really unusual for you it's like no there's something going on here I don't get that I know how my heart works there's something wrong and it's kind of about learning to how to listen to that voice in yourself and um, encourage out that inner voice your inner authority to recognize um, your feelings and your emotions and your body and your sensations and doing body scans often and frequently and assessing your your life and I call it the life template in in your book like knowing your life template really well knowing yourself really well so that you have the power and the resources to know when something's up and and where it's up and what you're familiar with so you might store stress in a particular part of your body all the time and therefore you know when that's happening okay, here it is again, I must be stressed or something, let's look at my life template again. And it's kind of, I wanted to empower people a little bit to hear their inner voice a bit in that sense. Um, so yeah, uh, does that answer your question? It really does, yeah, <laughs> no, it really does. And you like, it, we do know when we're stressed, we, t- it, we tend to be kind of almost towards the peak of it. And like you said, then people go, oh, I'm so stressed, but they won't change anything. 
<laughs> you know, they'll just like, just mention it, vocalize it and then carry on being stressed. And this idea that we can just sort of just stop and process and maybe like, why, when did the stress start? You know, like, did it start at nine o'clock this morning or is it only in the last half hour? And you know, what happened in between then that might've contributed to this and can I do things differently? I think that's really important. And so some of the best advice that I ever got from um, therapy and I actually kind of changed the way I kind of do everything based on this but I worked with a counselor um who was really dyslexic and he also had a son who was very very dyslexic and he used to say they had to have loads of processes and systems in their house to make life more manageable you know for living it with um with dyslexia and he said to me once um what's good for dyslexics is good for everybody and you know what he meant by that is the process he uses to slow down life so he can interpret it would work really well for everything else and something i started doing after working with him was to just slow life down and now i say that i live my life at 80% that's what i aim for 80% yeah. then when it speeds up because it will because life does i've got 20% i can absorb it i've got a little cushion Whereas previous to that, I lived my life at a hundred percent. And then when some sort of life event or something turned up, I couldn't, there was no space for it. And I would just break, you know, straight away. There was no resilience, no reserves, nothing. And, but by having that awareness of trying to, you know, and it, it you know, it, it can even be like stuff I think, because stress is quite accumulative, right? So, you know, we, if we don't process it, it stays in us and we just stack stress and stress and stress. And if you know you're going to be stressed at work, then, you know, maybe five high intensity gym classes isn't the best idea because that's a form of stress as well. And yeah. if we can juggle other aspects, it's a bit like Tetris, right? We can juggle yeah. other aspects of our life to fit in because you can't avoid stress. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, yeah. it's, 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 it's going to be there, right? So how do we manage it? How do we look at the, the bigger picture and look at our triggers and kind of put it all back together? And um, yeah, I think that's the, that's the key. And it, like I said, there's so much useful information that you've like laid out in your in your book to help people do that um but it's made me think a lot about stress and how that impacts you know from my own perspective how it's impacted my own mental health over the years and i think a lot of people will be listening to things you've just talked about and kind of you know there'll be a lot of aha moments in that because it's certainly um it's certainly given me a few definitely yeah oh fantastic yeah yeah that word cumulative that you used um is exactly it it's, it builds and builds and I like that Tetris image, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, and I was going to add to that, I was going to mention relationship stress, because I think when people talk about stress, they tend to be stressed in relation to things or events. But, um, we're, we're quite, we're social beings and we're quite relational. And um, I I kind of talk about relationships with people and you could think of relationships in sort of three levels. You've got your relationship to yourself, your relationship to people in your life, and then you've got your relationship to the world or society in a way. And all three of those things can, can create stress. Um, and if you can sort of um, do an audit to your relationships with these three things, that can sometimes be quite helpful because you can be quite content in one or two of them and not in the other. And you can sort of zoom in and out of them a little bit and see, well, where, where is the stress? Because right now, as I would say, a lot of us are going to have the stress in relation to the world. I think we've, we've got a lot of that going on. Um, so if that's there as a baseline, 
then it's going to potentially make our ability to be present with the people in our lives maybe slightly more tricky or our relationship with ourselves maybe slightly out of whack um, and you know being aware of what the relationships are like work and home life and all of that and how happy those relationships are making you because I think we forget that stress can be because of the people we're around as well so yeah very much so yeah, yeah. and we can transfer it too right so yeah. you might spend the day getting stressed at work and then come home and snap at your wife and it's like your wife hasn't done anything it's not her fault but um, you know, but it's the work stress carried over. And I suppose it works the other way, right? If your relationships with the people around you are causing you stress and maybe you don't realize it, then you're going to turn up at, at work or whatever other hats you have to wear in life. You're going to take that into those and, um, yeah, and lay it yeah. out. Yeah. A lot to think about. A lot to think about. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of other things. Are you all right for time, Katie? I'm very conscious of your time this morning. Yeah, I'm okay for time. I made sure that I, I pushed everything way back so that I would uh, to kind of do what you said about 80% and allowing, I've allowed um, extra time just in case. So yeah, go for it. Fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So there's a couple of other things that I wanted to touch on um, while I've got you. And um, I know that you did a little bit back in the day, a little work with the Samaritans. Is that right? Okay. And I was really in, interested in, in that process. And I suppose why you decided to get involved in the first place, because that, that stuff like that really interests me is why people decide to put themselves out there to help other people. Cause it can be a lot carrying, you know, helping other people with their stuff. You often end up maybe like carrying a few of those bags yourself. And I'm really interested in that process and what inspired you to go and um, to work with the Samaritans um, in the first place and how that was for you. Um, so yeah, the, um, the with Samaritans, there were two things that happened because I started out as a Samaritan, uh, volunteer. So I was uh, on the helpline and I was doing that for four years. That's what I began doing, but halfway through that. So when I was about two years in, I also started working for the charity full time as well. So before that I'd been a freelancer. I was freelancing as a journalist, like sub-editor, and then um, things, it was around that time, it was not long after, um, obviously we had that recession in 2008, but sometime after that kind of 2000 and going into 2010, work was was really getting quite scarce at some points, and um I felt like I, I wanted to do something more full-time, which is why I ended up working for them full-time. But in terms of why Samaritans specifically was that if I go, if I go back a bit and I don't, I hope I don't waffle along because I just kind of get my um, thoughts clear here. But um, I would say it probably goes back to when I was much younger when I was in my very early 20s. So um, when I was at university, there was a, a period of time where I went abroad because of the, the subjects I was studying. And I lived in France for a year and that triggered quite a lot of anxiety in me. And um, I felt like that was actually a time in my life where I felt that I was there, there was very little knowledge at the time really of anything I felt like I was going mad I felt like um I was I was having panic attacks I was developing 
what I now understand, um, and I didn't understand it at the time, was pure o OCD. Um, and it was in connection to just feeling, um, again, it was high stress transition because I, I was going through this big life change of moving country. I remember being very stressed with beforehand, I was living in a house share. I had to move out of that house share back home and find accommodation in France. I was like only a month or two off moving to France. I still didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't know what to do. There was the language barrier. Although I was obviously studying French, I was trying to um, navigate all of that kind of, you know, as a 19, 20 year old, trying to like find a flat to live in another country in another language whilst I was also doing exams because I had coursework and exams to do and moving out of a flat share. Um, I took on this job as well with the timing of it was terrible. I don't know why I did this, but I thought it would be a really good idea to, to apply for work <laughs> at that time in that summer. And the particular job that I applied to do, gosh, I just, I, I'm amazed at myself thinking, why did I do this? But it was in, I just wanted like a part-time job just to make some extra money. So I decided to join my student union nightclub. Um, I don't know if you remember this nightclub called Kaleidoscope. It was like an indie nightclub. And um, I decided to um, work in the box office, <laughs> which meant that, Every Saturday night, I would be up from, I'd get there for like 10 o'clock and I'd be there until about three or four in the morning. It's such a bad thing to be doing when I'm trying to move out of a flat and find accommodation and, and, and like move to another country. Taking on a job where I'm changing my sleep patterns on top of that is <laughs> really terrible <laughs> um, whilst at university whilst studying like what was oh gosh so I can see clearly when I look back that what I had essentially done is raised my stress levels to such an extent totally out of my awareness and there were other things going on as well because um friends of mine had had some bad news and I'd heard some horrible things. I ha had a friend who'd, um, who some years previously had attempted to take their own life. And then I'd heard that they were, they had disappeared for a while. And then I'd heard that they were okay. So th there was a lot of emotional things going on as well. And I think what had happened is that I just, in the transition to France, when I got there, my brain just did that flop, essentially. It just was like, uh-uh. And I, I just became, um, just started having sort of, as I said, yeah, panic attacks, um, intrusive thoughts. Um, I became really scared of myself, and um, I won't, I won't go into it too much. But like, yeah, that was my first experience of of going to quite a dark place, and, um there wasn't anywhere to get help from other than the wonderful friends that I made at the time but in terms of like how to contact people who to go to who to see it was just a labyrinth at the time and um there was also the fact that I was in another country I didn't know how the system worked and I ended up getting in contact with my um university counseling service and and I 
um, met these wonderful psychologists that were, um, I, I went to King's College University, so it's attached to the Maudsley, and it was a really fortuitous email that had landed in my inbox from the Institute of Psychiatry from students doing a research paper on anxiety and they had this questionnaire and they said like have a read of this questionnaire and um, please like um, if anyone wants to um, respond to the questionnaire or be a volunteer or a guinea pig um, we'd love to hear from you and when I read through their questionnaire I was like oh my god this is me everything I was reading I was like this is me this is me this is me and I, I had this moment of relief of like oh my gosh like I'm not going mad this is this is anxiety this is a thing so I, I emailed the head researcher back and what was so lovely is that the I will never forget the kindness and warmth that I had back because I, I emailed this stream of consciousness like, I feel like I'm going crazy. I don't know what's wrong with me. I need I need someone to help me. I don't know who to turn to. And the kindness of this man that just said, I'm so glad you got in touch, full stop. You have no idea how common this is, full stop. You're not on your own, full stop. I will be in touch, full stop. That was it. And I got an email back the next day from, from one of the um, psychology team just saying like, um, just tell us what what's going on for you um, and I outlined it all in an email and they said like um, obviously we can't give you therapy over email but we, we can give you quite a clear understanding of what's happening for you and they kind of broke it down and um, the, the psychologist her name was Louise Johns I want to mention her name because she was fantastic and um, she just broke down the email into bite-sized bits and just outline this is what's happening and this is why and it's it is probably anxiety and then what they did at the end was they said like if you want to come and talk to us we when you're back in the UK you can so I did and I set up a meeting with her and um I learned that what was going on was these were intrusive thoughts I was having um and there was a context to it and it was because my stress was so high and so it was ultimately that experience I think the feeling of um being at my lowest and when at my lowest being helped by these people that were so kind and understood me and listened to me and took me seriously and didn't dismiss me was such a powerful it, it was so powerful to me I remember after that thinking I don't want anyone to feel the way I felt and I just wanted to it was like I think this happens to a lot of people when they go through something that one of their first instincts is you start to notice other people who are going through these things and you just want to help and support them and I always remember that kindness of those people that responded to me I remember a they were really respectful they took me seriously and they were really kind and they didn't judge me and I will always remember those qualities so anytime I see a client now or, or encounter anyone now I will always remember that I remember how I felt and what I was met with and I make sure I do that to them and that triggered like initially a thought process of um how do I help more people because I realized I was becoming quite good at it and sort of 
being able to attune to when I could see people were not doing so well I thought how can I manage it in a boundaried way because I was also quite sensitive as a person and I probably didn't have the best boundaries in the sense that I would give my time to other people and and at the detriment of myself and I knew I wanted to kind of fine-tune the skill to be able to do it in a way where I can look after myself too and look after others and be uh, boundaried with it and hone the skill a little bit and I thought well I would like to train as a therapist but before I do it I just want to see that um, I can actually cope with that level of distress and I thought helplines would be a good way to kind of um, ease into it just to get to to get a sense of what that work would be like without committing to it too much financially and it started with that thought process and initially I looked up other helplines and then I thought Samaritans I thought okay suicide is that going to be too heavy but I had this thing in me like I wanted to test myself like I, I, I wanted to see like how how much can I take and can I hold that level of pain and, and darkness for want of a better word? I don't see it as dark anymore, but maybe at the time I thought, um, how deep can I go? And I felt like if I can handle people talking about death and suicide and, and can deal with that and I can hold space for people in there, then I know I can do this work. Um, so that's kind of my thought process around it. And it was it was a powerful experience because it, it really confronted me with, with where my fears were and knowing that I can meet those fears and talk to people at those at that junction of fear and not be scared of those conversations and actually it was very freeing because then I'm more used to people as well because then I can go there I, I, I'm not afraid to go there with people and have them talk to me about really difficult things and um, and be able to say that they want to die and for me to hear it and be okay with that so that that was kind of uh, that was a really long story. I'm so sorry for taking. Oh, mate, not at all. It's a really beautiful story. Oh. You know? And um, you know, thank you so much for your 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 openness and your honesty. Like, firstly, around your own experience, you know. Um, but you know, I love that way of, I love that way of looking at it. It's something I kind of like. I, I need to find a better saying than this. But something I have said in the past is that I truly believe it's the mentally ill are going to change the world because of the levels of compassion that people who have experienced some sort of, you know, whether it's a, a you know, a lifetime of stuff or whether it's a one-off event and it like, yeah. the, the, it really makes you a, a compassionate person. It really gives you empathy for other people, other people's experience. And like from my own point of view, before I was ill, I would consider myself to be a very selfish person. I didn't really care much about the wider world around me and what was going on with the bigger picture and what other people were going through. I was very, very self-obsessed and, um, afterwards through coming out the other side you know i'm incredibly 
compassionate person. You know, I go out of my way to see the world through other people's eyes. You know, and and it it's really changed like fundamentally how I go through go through life. And I think so many people experience that. Yeah. And um, you know, it, it does. It makes you think about things different, doesn't it? That that internal struggle. And it's lovely to hear that you were able to to go through that and and channel it into such a positive a positive way. And um, yeah, like it gave me a lot to thought about actually, because this whole idea of like holding space for other people and still having boundaries, yeah. <laughs> that's something I need to work on. So you've given me something to, um, to think about there as well, mate. So yeah, it was, it was lovely. Thank you very much for, um, for sharing that Katie. That was brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I, before I let you go, mate, we've got to talk about your podcast before we finish because, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of it. It's a great show. And you've had some incredible guests on there as well. Um, where, where did that come from? Obviously you're a massive a music fan yeah. and a lot of your work relates to, you know, to mental health and, and, you know, in the music spaces in the creative spaces. So where did the, where did sound effects come from? How did that get off the ground? Well, it was kind of a mixture of my two interests because I, um, so I mentioned that before I sort of got involved with Samaritans and training to be a therapist and all of that, I was more involved in the journalistic world. I still am, but I, I, I write more about mental health, as you know now. But when I started out, like because I was such a music fan as a child, um, music was everything to me and I think in many ways that's how that's where my identity lied I think people always like have uh different ways of identifying themselves but for me I really identified through the music I was listening to felt like I belonged and a lot of the friends I created a lot of that was often based around music and conversations about music and our love of certain songs and the passion around it and going to gigs and just how much meaning there was there and that initially triggered um that was the interest I had as a young person that inspiration of thinking how wonderful would it be to be a music writer and a music journalist and probably around the same sort of time when I was talking about the days I used to go and knock on William and Noel's doors that was around the time I used to read so many interviews about them in the press and obviously those were the days of like the music press were brilliant in those days because he had like Melody Maker and NME and Select and Q all of these magazines that so many of them have gone and I'd read so many of them and what I loved was the in-depth interviews those really long-form pieces where it was the only way sometimes you could get to know your favorite bands and I used to find especially Noel and Liam, just so funny and hilarious. And I would laugh out loud and I used to think, who wrote these pieces? Like the people that were doing the interviews, they must have had such a good time like on the road with, with these um, bands that they love. And initially it triggered that kind of romantic idea of, oh, how, how great would it be to go on the road and do that for a living and and meet your favorite bands and go to gigs and your life is just going to gigs all the time and listening to your favorite music and that's all you do all day and I thought I wanted nothing more than to just be a music journalist that's all I wanted to do <laughs> so it started with that and then I I started like obviously I was young so it began like just writing bits and pieces 
for myself and then when I got a bit older like working for the um, student newspaper and writing going doing music reviews for them and I started doing a few little interviews um, at that time with one of the first interviews I did was with um, Ben Gultry from the, the Cooper Temple Clause and it was an over the phone interview and it was, you know, I had just one of those old mobile phones where like it was pay as you go. I had like a, a card. I had like a certain number of minutes. I didn't have any dictaphone. There was no microphone or anything. It was all by memory. I was just listening to him with a, with a pen in one hand, the phone in the other, scribbling down frantically everything he was saying and just hoping for the best that I'd remember it all and it was such I remember the thrill of it and thinking like he he made this really funny comment at the end about um the kinds of people uh, the kinds of the, the kind of person that he is and the kinds of people he meets and he ended the interview by going yeah you've got to be a good person really because no one likes a smug little so-and-so and I remember that and I, I remember that being one of the quotes that I put in the thing and I just remember that feeling oh this is such a thrill and so I I kind of developed that interest and even though like the course that I did wasn't connected to that topic I, I had this thing with the student paper and then I left and I did like work experience with them. Um, actually, I did I did work experience at Melody Maker when I was 16. I forgot about that. That was an amazing experience as well. And it's just like scratching that itch and um doing more work experience and then joining this um small publishing company and interviewing bands for that and getting involved in writing about music. And then that developed into like obviously I got a full-time job and that was in like a science publishing um, which was a bit of a weird sort of sidestep but it was at a sort of level where it was more production based I was like a production editor and the timing of everything worked really well because it was like a short-term contract it was like maternity contract and when that came to an end I was looking up jobs and I just typed in like it was something I typed into Google, like, um, I think I typed in enemy jobs because I was thinking like music journalism and this job popped up for a, a job at NME and I was like, oh my God, they're actually hiring. <laughs> and um, I applied for it. And to my surprise, I got an interview and they knew I was leaving my previous job. So it got down to like the last two people and I just missed out on the job to the other person. And they said it was really, really close. Like you said, you know, the other person just had slightly more experience than you. But because you're leaving, would you like some freelance work? And then they just offered me, I, I became a sub-editor there. So from that, really, um, I that's how I got into kind of... Um, being in the music press as like as a sub-editor, as a freelancer, and then that grew into more of a freelance job. You know what? 
I have realized I've gone off on a tangent and I can't remember your initial question. I'm really sorry. What it's was not a problem. Question? Tangents are, are what it's all about, mate. It's what I live for. We're, oh, uh, we're talking about getting your um getting into your podcast and into getting your podcast, podcast off the ground. That's it. <laughs> sorry about that. Um it was just all of that was simply just to explain the passion that I had. I think I got overexcited there. It was just the passion that I had at that age to do that kind of work. But I think um what happened is because other things took over um I the writing sort of developed more into sub-editing and then kind of working in magazines generally and the music side of things kind of fell a little bit to the wayside but I had this this passion around the music there and then I started like picking it up again and writing again about music um and then um I I just remember thinking like, how can I combine these two things? Like I'm really interested in mental health. I'm really interested in music. And then I thought of putting them together because at that point people weren't really doing that. And I, I, this was like mid sort of 2015, 16, 17, people just weren't really talking about the mental health impact of music. And I knew that there were things like there was, you know, music therapy existed and, I thought I want to put these two things together so that's kind of how it began and I did this little pilot episode for a radio station at the Boogaloo they had Boogaloo radio and I remember like because I, I I went in there and just asked like would they be interested in like I, I didn't have any radio experience whatsoever but I was like I'm willing to help out you know whatever and they said well why don't you do like a little one-off show so I did I did that and then it didn't work out because it you know I didn't really have experience and stuff but I thought well why stop there you know I could do a podcast and by that point podcasts were becoming more of a thing and I was getting more in I was listening to Oasis podcast at that point I was getting really into that and I was a guest on that and then I thought you know I maybe I'll just put my own podcast together and combine these two interests of music journalism and mental health and put them together and it just really grew it started from really it started from a question around music um why people want to be in bands because my you know growing up my brother was in a band and he had lots of friends in bands um I noticed a pattern with them as well around like when they were in their teenage years like what they wanted from life and what music was giving them and what being in a band was about and it seemed to be about like some kind of escapism or um and I could see that there was a kind of there was a mental health element there for them and I particularly because it was my brother and his friends they were all guys I could see there was something around male mental health going on and no one was at that age when they were like 18 this was in the 90s no one really was thinking about this stuff publicly but I do remember just thinking I can see connections here between male particularly men um, and young men and depression and music and connection with parents and father figures and things like that and identity and I just thought I want to put all of that stuff that I remember together and bring it to the podcast and explore this question a bit more. 
and mix it in with the stuff that I did at Samaritans and um, all the stuff I learned from that about, you know, suicidal awareness and um, all that stuff, male suicide and bring it all together and put it in one place, which is where, where I, it kind of all began. And so it, it's kind of exploring the whole side of music and mental health from music industry, musicians, and how music impacts us. And talking to musicians and talking to academics and experts as well. And just sort of leaving no stone unturned in a way in that respect, just kind of really exploring the area. And I can see how the topic has grown and developed in other places. Like there's loads of people talking about it now and there's more podcasts and books have been written about it. And it's great because it feels like this area is growing but that's where it began like just the seed of this idea <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's lovely. that's actually fascinating to hear you talk about that because you when you talk about like you know teenage boys and mental health and music and stuff like that I could really really picture myself in that bracket you know as a teenage boy wanting to leave the small town I was in and and a music obsessive and, you know, all the songs I would listen to around about that period, you know, all the Oasis ones, it was all, you know, let's like stay young and, you know, like uh, all the all the ones about like moving away or moving on or hanging on to your youth. That was that sort of element to it would have been my constant playlist around that time. And um, I definitely would have been experiencing like mental health mental health uh, disruptions around there too that I didn't really know what the, they were and I think there there really is a conversation in that in that somewhere yeah that's brilliant it's um yeah it's a, it's a wonderful show it's really good I really enjoy it one of the things I like about it most um is like I mean partly some of the guests you've had are incredible there's some wonderful names there but uh, I think from your perspective as a counselor and psychotherapist as well they sometimes your episodes goes places that I wouldn't have predicted by looking at the the guest on the thing I really like that it'll be a bit of a conversation and I kind of think you know as a fellow podcaster I often think when I listen to other people's I think what would I ask then or what would you know where would I try and like take this and um that's yours always go somewhere where I kind of um you, know, you can you can hear the work the other side of the work that you do in the way that you speak to people and I really enjoy that that process oh, thank you. Um, there you go mate <laughs> Katie I'm gonna have to go I'm really conscious oh, of your time but um I kind of I kind of feel like there's a there's a follow-up <laughs> episode out there somewhere because um that that time flew by that was so easy and um yeah it was just lovely and we didn't even really get into music which is something that I can talk about all day long so um who knows right who knows but thank you so much for your time today I really really appreciate it and it was lovely to uh lovely to meet you so lovely to meet you too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> 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 a podcast a proper mental podcast <laughs>